Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, this episode was inspired by something that happens all too regularly these days, and that would be me basically reading something on the internet and losing my mind. <laughs> Flying into a rage and then grabbing your microphone and hitting the road. Well, and and then really like not having anyone in my day-to-day world with whom I can share this, Jennifer, you know you can always share with me. Well, ever since you changed your phone number. <laughs> <laughs> so this particular example is going to sound obscure, but bear with me. So recently I happened upon something online and, you know, we're in the midst of, of yet another flare-up of our reading wars. And a gentleman at Education Week had diagnosed another aspect of the problem. Students lack reading stick to itness, right? They run out of steam. They don't have the stamina. And so this starts flying around the site that used to be known as Twitter. And then I see all these teachers respond and they're like, hey, do you realize that what we do now is teach out of context passages and then test our students over and over again on whether they comprehend said out of context passages? And I know this may sound very specific to our listeners who are not in edu world, but to me, it actually sums up something broader that we're in the midst of a variety of kind of slow moving crises. And these could be, you know, the teacher shortages or the student absenteeism crisis. And yet there's really no acknowledgement at all regarding the damage that's been done to schools and kids and teachers over the sort of near term. And in fact, what you often hear are the same people and the same policy ideas being put forward to fix the things that are broken. And so I could not wait to get in front of the microphone and grab you (laughs) and say, Jack, let's just discuss. Yeah, yeah, I won't give away too many insights here at the very beginning of the show, but I will say that one of the things that strikes me as important to be thinking about here is how slow motion this uh, train wreck has unfolded, right? So if you think about any sort of major change in American education, right, it is going to provoke a kind of opposition given the fact that we have all been through school. So people are resistant to school looking markedly different from what it looked like when they were in school. You know, case in point, the new math, right, dead on arrival. But if a change can happen slowly enough that it actually transforms the experiences that people have in school, right? then it largely becomes invisible because everybody who is in a position of policy authority, everybody who is in a position of power in school districts or state central offices has moved through school with that being the normal state of affairs. I remember thinking about 10 years ago that we had reached the end of the horizon for 
teachers who would be coming out of school having experienced anything other than NCLB-style testing, right? Certainly there are experienced educators who had different experiences while they were in school, but we were no longer going to be getting any new teachers coming out of their teacher education programs having experienced something different than test-based accountability during their K-12 years, right? And that matters. And to draw things back then to your observation about students reading passages, I'm thinking of a tweet from, do we call them tweets anymore? An X from friend of the show, Jennifer Jennings at Princeton, saying that, you know, roughly 10 years ago, she interviewed a student who who said that his favorite book in school was Passages. And, you know, this was not a book, this was not a novel, right, called Passages. This was just a collection of passages that these students were reading in school. And again, we can think about the impact that this has as a kind of slow motion accident as being pretty different than the impact that it would have had had it come to everyone's attention immediately, had there been a national conversation about it, had all of us sat down and talked through the consequences of shifting away from real, engaging, authentic texts and moving towards reading passages. But that didn't happen. And as a result, it's just a normal part of K-12 schooling these days. You know, some of us may be outraged by it, but it, it is a pretty ordinary piece of everyday schooling. Well, I found the perfect person for us to talk to about all of this. Her name is Nora Delacour, and she is a young, already former teacher, which makes me so sad to say that. And she writes about public education. I absolutely love her stuff. And one of her observations that I think is so smart is that at least some of the appeal from what's on offer from the right right now, things like classical charter schools or voucher programs that allow you to send your kid to a private religious school on the taxpayer dime. At least the appeal of some of that comes from the damage that's been done to public education, precisely what you were just talking about, right? That all that's on offer is passages. (laughs) Yeah, another way of saying that is that we exist right now at a moment when there are two conflicting paradigms that are overlapping with each other. Now, one of them is something you're going to be so excited to hear named, and you're not allowed to name it. And so I can see how excited you are, right? And and it's neoliberalism, right? So as we've discussed previously on the show, the neoliberal consensus, which was in place from approximately 1989 through 2016, was concerned chiefly with test-based accountability, with corporate-style management, with introducing some competition into public education, again, with the influence there being sort of business-mindedness. And that era is over, and yet we continue to live with its after-effects, as well as with the zombies who continue to try to resurrect the vision that presided over public education for you know the better part of three decades. And that era, 
has run right up against this new era of privatization and a battle for the soul of public education, whether there will be public schools. And one of the things we've talked about previously is the fact that the the after effects of the neoliberal consensus era have in many ways, even though it's a totally different ideology, a totally different kind of paradigm, have in many ways set the stage for this new era in which we are fighting over whether or not public schools will exist for precisely the reason we've been talking about, right? The kind of hollowing out of the, the reason d'etre of public schooling, which is so much more than the acquisition of reading comprehension skills that can be measured by an end-of-course standardized test. Well, Jack, while I talk to Nora, I want you to, I provided you with an out-of-context passage, and I want you to review it, and then we'll bring you back on to quiz you. Does that sound good? (laughs) That's perfect. I look forward to it. Now to the main event. Our special guest today is writer and former teacher Nora Delacour. And to set the stage for where we're headed, we need to go back to the 2010s. Nora is figuring out what she wants to do with her life. And an experience at an after-school program in West Philadelphia convinces her that the answer is working with kids. So she goes back to school to become a teacher. And while she's there, she spends a lot of time thinking about the kinds of books she's going to be teaching. Only as she quickly discovers when she gets into the classroom, that's not really a thing anymore. I got really excited about reading with my students during my grad program and just was thinking so much about which different kinds of books might excite like the adolescents I was going to be working with. Then I get into the classroom and there's not room in the day for teachers to really like bring in a text that they're excited about and like delve into it and like really spend time with it. You know, there's just this emphasis on like ticking off the boxes and like moving from point A to point B and finding the main idea and three pieces of supporting evidence. And there seems to be like no appreciation for like the experience of going on a journey that a story takes you on. Like a lot of young teachers, Nora moved around from school to school. One year she taught in an African-centered charter school. Then she moved on to the Philadelphia School District, where she taught English and history in a middle school that was being turned around. The school had more resources, which sounded great to young Nora. But what she didn't quite comprehend when she took the job was that teaching at this school meant reading from a script. I greet the students, then I read aloud to them for 15 minutes, then I ask to check for understanding questions, that kind of thing. There was like a curriculum map that I had to follow. And like, I would be checked up on. There would be pop-up visits from all manner of different administrators and babysitters who would come in and like check that I was on exactly the moment that I was supposed to be on. And so what that means is that if there's an interesting disagreement in the room, for example, and then we want to like dive into this more, there's something interesting going on in the discussion, like go with it because everybody's blood is flowing and everyone's paying attention and we will all learn something new, but you couldn't ever do that because you have to like move on to the next thing constantly. So there was just no room for me to be creative or to bring the kind of things that inspire me into the classroom. And it's really demoralizing for teachers because the message is you can't think for yourself and you can't be a professional. We need to write a formula for you. 
What Nora was just starting to understand was that she was living through, or rather teaching through, what we often refer to on this show as a theory of change. And central to the Obama-era theory was the idea that getting tougher on teachers would make them better. But there was also a specific piece of the theory that applied to Nora, and it went something like this. Teachers weren't doing a good enough job of preparing kids to comprehend the kinds of texts they were going to encounter in the real world, devote more time to so-called informational texts, and students would go on to college and career better able to analyze documents and make arguments, resulting first in higher test scores and eventually to global domination or something like that. With the Common Core, literature has really been sidelined because there's this emphasis on informational texts. Obviously, fiction contains information and is a great way to learn about the world, but like it's not seen as as important as these persuasive or explanatory, boring passages that kids are reading to like find the main idea. And then when they are encountering stories or poetry, drama, it's in the form of these lifeless excerpts that are super confusing because they're totally decontextualized and like you just can't get a sense of the whole. Nora ended up leaving Philadelphia and returning to Western Massachusetts, where she's from. She took a job teaching 10th graders at an alternative school in Springfield, Mass. And one of her main responsibilities was to help them prepare for the state's annual standardized test, the MCAS. I was assigned to cram for the MCAS with them, the English MCAS. So we had like release MCAS from past years. And what they were assigned to do was read an excerpt of Frankenstein, which was like the most boring excerpt from Frankenstein. Like there could have been like a much juicier excerpt, but this was like a letter that was written to him by his adopted sister. It was just like very, very confusing. And then they were asked to do something with it. Adopt the mindset, make an argument from such and such perspective, like something that I was like very confused by myself. So there's no way they were going to be able to do it. So it was just like this extremely demoralizing moralizing experience with Frankenstein when it should have been a really exciting experience because it's a juicy monster story that they would have loved if they had had a chance to really read the whole book. A little more context on that school where she was working, Nora, who also has a degree in social work, started there as a long-term sub. The classes were small because of the high needs of the kids, and every day brought new challenges and distractions. It was an alternative public school for kids with extreme needs, social, emotional, behavioral learning needs, and just lots and lots of trauma and hardship and unmet needs due to economic hardship. Then within the building, there were so many different distractions, fights, lockdowns, kids getting pepper sprayed and handcuffed and arrested, really combative SROs. So it was an extremely uphill battle to like get kids' attention in this context. And these are kids who have been really alienated by school in the past and just don't identify as people who want to be in school. Now, maybe you're thinking by this point, this sounds like a nightmare. No wonder Nora isn't teaching anymore. But that's not how Nora saw things at all. These were exactly the students she wanted to be working with. And she remained utterly convinced that she could reach them through literature. And that's exactly what she tried to do. Cue dramatic music, because we're headed to the theater. Speak, if you can. What are you? All hail, Macbeth. Hail to the thane of Glamps. All hail, Macbeth. Hail to the thane of Cawdor. All hail, Macbeth. 
that shalt be king hereafter. I was assigned to teach my 10th graders Macbeth. And I knew that because of all of these disruptions and challenges, this was going to be a really tough assignment to kind of like command the level of focus needed to really wrestle with the Shakespeare play. But I was eager for the challenge because I think Macbeth is perfect for 10th graders because they're so full of their own drama and like people getting in their ear and trying to influence them and feelings of, you know, social ambition and paranoia and stuff. Like there's just so much in it for them. So we did tons of dramatic read-alouds. We were like out of our seats every day acting it out. I had my student who wanted to play Banquo every day. We were debating about it constantly. Like I had my Lady M defenders and my Macbeth defenders and kids were very invested in it and I think excited to come to class to dig in every day. And then the action ground to a halt for that most mundane of reasons. Before the class could get to the climactic Act 5, the time that had been allotted for the unit ran out. In other words, curtains. So I begged our learning specialist for one more week to just like shepherd my students to the end of this journey. And she was like unequivocally, no. She said, we teach the standards, not the books. So, you know, if you ticked off RL 10 point, whatever the standards were, if you ticked off those boxes, then it doesn't matter if they finish Macbeth. And that just put me over the edge because it really mattered to my students to finish Macbeth, kind of like against all odds. They didn't think they could read a Shakespeare play going into it, and they didn't think they would want to. And they had somehow managed in this incredibly challenging environment to like focus on it and really get into it. And they were excited to see what would happen each day. And the learning specialist would tell me this doesn't matter. It just felt like, well, then what's the point of anything that I'm doing here? And that was like the nail in the coffin for my teaching career. (laughs) So, Jack, I want to bring you back in. We did an episode last year about what's going on in Houston. And to absolutely no one's surprise, some new data is out and teachers there have been voting with their feet, right? That they they are not keen on the idea of delivering scripted lessons, checking for student comprehension every 30 seconds, et cetera. And you've talked on this show before about the psychic pay cut. And, and you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, how these, you know, teachers are experiencing precisely the collision of what you were talking about in the opening of the show, right? That they are on the receiving end of the kind of zombie accountability stuff. And, you know, the like these right-wing efforts that blame them for everything uh, from grooming to indoctrination. You know, Greg Abbott in Texas warned of uh, a rising tide of transgenderism that was swamping Texas's public schools. So so I like when I think about why teachers are leaving, I just, you know, I imagine young Nora in that Philly school delivering her completely scripted lesson. And you know, where is the joy in that? Yeah. Yeah, for those who haven't listened to prior shows in which we've talked about this, right? the idea of psychic pay comes out of the sociology of education from work by people like Dan Lordy, who observed that educators earn substantially less than their similarly educated peers. This is actually even truer today in 2024 than in prior years. And one of the reasons that we are able to get these highly educated professionals working for less than they could command in the free market were they to work in other occupations is that 
a significant percentage of their remuneration for their work comes in the form of these psychic rewards, right? The feeling that you are making a difference, the sense that you are doing important work. And educators historically have occupied this kind of liminal professional space where we often view their work as being easier than it actually is, largely because we've all been through school and we think we know what teaching requires, uh, though we rarely peer behind the curtain. But teachers at the same time have been valorized for doing really important work for, you know, raising the next generation. And here we are now, you know, at the end of the neoliberal consensus era in which teachers were framed as bad guys. And that was a bipartisan practice. So we saw... Barack Obama, for instance, talking about the importance of highly qualified teachers in the classroom and then talking about, you know, busting their unions and uh, making sure that many more of them would be fired, hopefully as a result of student standardized test results. So teachers during this neoliberal consensus era had suffered a major psychic pay cut there because they were being positioned in a different way. And really, they were being positioned as impediments to this top-down corporate-style neoliberal reform that would transform schools via performance management. That era is over, and yet we continue to live with the after effects of it. And as you mentioned, these zombie-style reforms that continue to come back and, and damage the teaching profession at the exact same time Teachers are suffering from another kind of psychic pay cut, which you referenced there, which is that as the culture war has been cynically deployed as a way of trying to alienate Americans from their public schools so that a radical ideological agenda can be pursued, and that is dismantling public education, the teaching profession has been once more slapped with a massive psychic pay cut, right? What does it feel like to watch elected officials giving speeches on television about how rotten you and your colleagues are, right? When you are showing up to work every day knowing that you could make more money if you had chosen a different occupation and no longer having these kind of non-monetary rewards that you thought you were going to be getting from this profession, you can see why educators have increasingly over the past couple of decades been talking about leaving. And so many, as we've talked before on the show, so many smug quants had dismissed educators and said, well, let's actually see if they leave. And we before on this show have said, even if they don't leave, it is a real problem that they are talking about leaving because not only do we depend on them being in classrooms, we depend on them applying themselves far beyond what they are contractually obligated to do. Right. So educators contractually can leave school the minute that last bell rings. But think about all of the things 
that we want them to do, right? We want them to communicate with students and their families. We want them to organize after school clubs. We want them to prepare lessons for the next day and the next week. We want them to grade papers and exams and offer feedback to students. And all of that adds up. And so I think right now what we're seeing is two things. One is a scaling back of effort from those who remain in classrooms because it simply isn't worth it anymore, right? It's about survival now for many. And for those who can leap to another profession or retire or who are willing to just take a risk and quit and figure something else out, we're seeing attrition from the profession and just more difficulty in terms of replacing those folks. Thanks, Jack. That was great. But I do have a little bad news for you. I just saw some new polling data out and it turns out that the most distrusted profession in America right now is, wait for it, college College professors. Now back to our special guest. As you know from the intro to the show, Nora is no longer teaching. She's spending time with her young daughter and writing about public education. But while she may not be in the classroom, she's still thinking about how students like hers in Philly and Springfield experienced a vision of education reform that, as she sees it, sucked the life out of public schools. I just think like so much of education reform in general creates this really fragmented, disjointed, jarring experience for students. So definitely like only reading passages and never seeing the whole is confusing. And I don't think it cultivates a sense of purpose because it's like we're just doing one thing one day, another thing the next day. I've taught at a lot of schools that were really focused on remediation. And so the only unifying thread in English class is like students need to be able to support their arguments with five pieces of evidence. So we can be reading a passage about the Byzantine Empire one day and college sports the next day because there is no unifying idea behind the content. It's not building from day to day. It's not connecting to the other disciplines that students are engaging with. It's just, it's all about being able to do stuff with the text, not being able to like appreciate the text and feel transformed by the text and to see yourself in the text. You know, like I believe students bring their own experiences to reading and then like out of that interaction between their worldview and their experiences and the story, new meaning unfolds, but there's like one right answer and you have to get the right answer out of the text and then support it with three pieces of evidence. Back in 2022, we did an episode with journalist and friend of the show, Catherine Joyce, about classical charter schools. Those are the Hillsdale College-aligned charters that aim to counter the left on the battlefield of education by exposing students to great books and ideas of beauty and virtue. Now, our take, unsurprisingly, was that these schools are part of a larger right-wing political project aimed at minting young conservatives and rolling back much of the 20th century. Nora says that's true, but it's not the whole story. She wrote a piece last year that I just love called Neoliberal Education Reform Paved the Way for Right-Wing Classical Education. And part of what I so appreciated about it is that she really wrestles with why certain parents and students would find these schools so appealing. 
you'll hear parents and students too in the Hillsdale College ads talking about like, I just wanted something more. Like I thought that education should be about more than just job preparation. You know, it should nourish the soul and the mind and the body and like the whole person. And I think it feels very exciting because it feels like it coheres around this really beautiful vision for elevating the whole person. There's no exciting vision that you can see in the education reform space. It's all just like punishments. And as Nora dove into the world of classical education, she found themes that, much to her surprise, really resonated with her. One of the things that they talk about with kids' books and just like the importance of reading great books is that you're feeding the soul, which I'm like, I sort of feel that way too. They see it as like you're feeding the child's soul so that when the moment comes to do something great and take right action that they will have been fed on Beatrix Potter and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And so they'll know how to do the brave thing. And it feels very enticing because I think it feels like, well, yeah, the individual is really important and you're coming to school to learn how to be a hero. It definitely contrasts sharply with education reform, which says like good, beautiful, doesn't matter. The only thing is raising your test scores by processing text better so that you can like not be a drag on the economy. And if you get proficient on your standardized test, you're just doing the exact thing that everybody else is supposed to do. So there's nothing special about you or exciting about the journey that you're on. As you'll quickly learn when you read Nora's fantastic article, the definitions of virtue and good and right being offered up by the Hillsdale folks, well, let's just say they have a particular slant. But the point is that they're selling a vision of what school is for that's bigger and more profound than test prep or job training. And the more Nora thought about that big vision, the smaller the vision on offer at the schools where she taught seemed to be. Take, for example, an experience that she had when she was teaching at that Philly turnaround school. So we were told that we had to represent on the walls of our classroom where students stood vis-a-vis each other in terms of who was proficient, who was approaching proficiency, and who was like needs improvement. And they were anonymized. It was supposed to be their lunch numbers. But the whole point was that Naeem is supposed to look at it and see like, I need improvement. And like that's supposed to motivate him to really focus on his work, which doesn't work because it just makes you feel like you're never going to live up to expectations. And the expectations themselves are not something you even want to live up to because it's just like, why do I care about this test? There's nothing unique about me in this. I have to like approach proficiency and I don't even know what proficiency means. That's your goal. There's nothing about what are students bringing into the classroom that excites them and interests them. It's just about, I have to do better because I'm failing and my school is going to get closed if I don't stop failing so much. By now you're probably thinking to yourself, wow, I really want to read some articles by this Nora Delacour. And she certainly has a lot of opinions on what's gone wrong. Does she have any solutions to propose? Well, Nora says that a big part of fixing what's gone wrong in our public schools is acknowledging just how much damage has been done, especially to students like the ones she taught. There hasn't been like just a general acknowledgement, really, that what we did was wrong. It was really harmful and it harmed, the most harms were experienced by the students who were supposedly the ones we were trying to help. 
It's like a generation of kids. I just don't think there has been real honest acknowledgement of that. And I think with the things that we're seeing with young people today, like the chronic absenteeism, but I just think there's like really high rates of nihilism and despair. Education reform and the soul crushing emphasis on standardized testing has really contributed to that because I keep using the word dehumanizing, but I just think it, it has taught students to kind of like suppress everything that makes them feel alive and creative and critical and to just feel like they're supposed to be automatons and always feel like they're not measuring up. So I think that that has really contributed to how lonely and sad kids are feeling today. So an apology would be nice. What else? Well, we kicked off this episode talking about the various slow-moving crises that are swamping our public schools, one of them being the teacher exodus that Nora has now joined. She says that to stem the tide, policymakers need to understand what really motivates teachers and to recognize the importance of the psychic rewards of the profession. I feel like we just heard something about that. It's so insulting, the idea that teachers aren't going to work hard if someone isn't breathing over their shoulder constantly, because if you've ever stood unprepared in front of like 35 kids, they will punish you and you'll never do it again. So it's like we're motivated by our students. And that's a very powerful motivation. And like most every teacher I've ever known is willing to work really hard and take homework on the weekends and nights to be prepared to plan engaging lessons for their students and to provide thoughtful feedback on student work. Teachers obviously are not making nearly as much as similarly educated professionals, but they are so motivated by those powerful non-remunerative rewards of like being able to get students excited about Macbeth. And then that stuff is just interfered with every step of the way. And we're given so much stupid, busy work. Then it's like, I'm not motivated to like do all of this work and take all of this work home on the weekends just so that my boss can feel like, you know, she's ticked off the boxes so that her boss can think that she ticked, you know, like that's just not at all inspiring. And so I think that has a lot to do with the teacher exodus. As for how to reconnect kids with school, Nora says that the answer really isn't that complicated. We need to think about giving kids an education that helps them to feel a sense of purpose. Why am I even here? What am I working on? I think we should let them like engage with the real problems of the world and and focus on those and do things that build from day to day instead of just a different thing every day. With the chronic absenteeism that we're seeing, we have to think about how do we want to make school a more inviting place where people actually want to be. That was former and hopefully future teacher Nora Delacour. She writes about education for a variety of publications, including Jacobin, and I highly encourage you to check out her work. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about the emergence of the standardized testing zombie. Must have tests. And to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. This one is a Jack special. He's going to be guiding us through the world of stylized facts. You know them, you love them. Claims like only one third of American kids can read or half of teachers graduated in the bottom third of their college class. These sorts of claims are a staple of education discourse. But did you know they're stylized facts? To find out more, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. Jack, even while we've 
been working on this episode, the standardized testing zombie has been gathering strength and steam. So we had this very long, very irritating piece in the New York Times by David Leonhardt, you know, like making the case, you know, we've got to bring back the SAT because merit, merit, merit. And this whole thing about how, you know, like we've got, we must admit only the, the top students to our Ivy League institutions because they're the ones who are going to cure cancer and and solve the environmental crisis. Um, and then we had the parenting writer for the New York Times also, you know, like climbing back aboard the standardized testing bandwagon. And what was interesting to me was how... Well, how disconnected these arguments are from the reality of what's happening in schools, but also that they're basically just trotting out the same arguments that we heard over and over and over again during the Obama era. Like, let's have fewer tests, but make them better. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, blue jeans, right? That... You you wear them in a particular style for a while before you realize, wow, this is really sort of silly, right? These are are more like bloomers than they are like jeans. And then you move on because you realize that it's not a fabulous look. And a couple decades pass, and all of a sudden you look around and and all the kids are wearing these big baggy jeans again. And you wonder, you know, where was everybody? Were they asleep during that era? And, and you know, at least young people and their fashion choices have an excuse, right? Hey, we weren't born yet. Um, this It's our turn to wear uh, silly fitting clothing. Uh, and, and I do not deny them that right. Uh, enjoy. But for adults who were conscious during, you know, the Obama era and the George W. Bush era, right? Let's not forget the person who signed NCLB into law. The idea that we would simply resurrect these tired arguments and that we would do so with no awareness of the current political context, right? A context in which parents are saying maybe Maybe a private school voucher is something that I'd like to consider. And in which the right is saying public schools are broken, get out. It is just exceptionally tone deaf and naive to say, well, what we really need is to double down on test-based accountability, right? There is nobody that is clamoring for their kids to be tested more. No one is out there begging for leaders to ensure that what happens in classrooms is even more dictated by end-of-year machine-scored multiple choice standardized tests and ask young people themselves, right? Uh, So one of my research groups has started interviewing students, ask them, and they'll largely give you two answers. One is the tests don't really have that much to do with what we're learning in class. In which case, you know, I think good on good on their teachers there uh, for doing right by their students. But then the students feel inadequately prepared for some of these tests. And then the other thing students will say is everything that we do is aligned with these tests. And both of those things are problems because what we see there is an abandonment of the kind of schooling that 
transforms young people's lives and that gets them excited about being there and that makes them see value in what they're learning. And I think this is precisely connected to the current policy crisis of absenteeism, right? The sky is falling right now according to most policy analysts. And I don't mean to make light of, of student attendance or lack thereof, right? It's a real issue. But it is once more pretty surprising to me that people don't connect the dots here, right? What they want to say is, well, it's COVID. Students got used to being online and what we need is to make it easier for them to attend school without having to lace up their shoes and hop on a school bus. I think instead, students have been through a national trauma and that is just adding further burden to many students' lives. And you add up those burdens and eventually it gets to the point where they feel like, why am I bothering with school in the first place, right? It's not like I'm enjoying myself here. It's not like it feels super relevant to me. And, and I think the only way out of this crisis is to abandon these tired notions about what school is for and to actually listen to young people, to listen to families, to listen to communities who have not given up on education, who have not given up on the idea of school. In fact, their idea of school is much more broad and capacious and inspiring than the ideas of, you know, a small network of policy elites. Well, I will admit that I've actually been kind of surprised by the ferocity of the return of the standardized testing zombie. And um, people know that you and I are here in Massachusetts, and this is particularly true here, right? That we have we have a tight-knit group of bipartisan policy elites, basically with their own daily newspaper. And this is the single most important issue to them in the world. And they see threats to standardized testing everywhere. Yeah, and and... I think it's important to name one of the ways that policy works, and that is that there are good people who are in charge of state education policy, right? They get into this business because they want to do good in the world and they want to help young people. And the way that policy works is that politics shapes what is possible there, right? Politics sets the parameters for what can happen in terms of the crafting of policy. And, and I know for a fact that there are people here in Massachusetts and across the 50 states who are open to the idea of changing assessment and accountability, as it presently works. But, right, they need to have some political clearance in order to do that. They need to have a mandate in order to do that. And in many cases, they are being pinned in at, again, at exactly the time when what we want to be signaling is how great public education is in terms of advancing not just the interests of young people themselves, but our collective interests as a democratic society. Well, Jack, we have reached that time in the episode where I am given the thankless task of trying to <laughs> convince people to follow us over the paywall and into a special area that we call the weeds. And I think people have really appreciated your insights this episode about things like the psychic pay cut and the sort of, you know, the clash of the, the neoliberal accountability vision with the privatization vision. And they're thinking to themselves, you know what I'd really like right now? More Jack Schneider insights. Uh. <laughs>
<laughs> so you're once more going to dangle me on the other side of the paywall, and I am expected to, you know, like give people some sort of sneak preview to what I'll be talking about over there. Okay, all right. I'll, you say that you have the thankless task. I will thank you by doing your bidding here, Jennifer. Um, one of the things that I have been talking about a lot recently with friend of the show, Derek Gottlieb, is the idea of a stylized fact, which I just think is is really fascinating. And, and I think it's relevant to what we've been talking about today because it was deployed so successfully during that neoliberal consensus period in education policy. And what is a stylized fact? We'll be getting into that, but Basically, it is a fact that is embedded with assumptions and beliefs and values, and all of those have been packaged into the fact itself such that it seems like an objective piece of information, and yet it carries an entire agenda. Case in point would be 95% of educators get the highest possible evaluation, right? So we were exposed to that stylized fact a number of times during the Obama era. And it isn't just a piece of information, right? It's got an entire agenda packed in. Let's figure out how to give these two teachers lower evaluations. There's got to be a more objective way than human beings going in and observing them. So that that's what we'll be talking about in the weeds. And now, Jennifer, you get to tell people all of the fabulous ways that they can support the show without joining Patreon, which gets them access to the weeds, which gets them a customized reading list, and which at a certain level gets them a free copy of the book, which will update to the new book, uh, The Education Wars, once it comes out in early summer. And of course, if all of those things sound appealing to you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. And if the weeds does not appeal this time around, we'd love it if you'd share the show, give us a rating that makes it easier for people to find the show. And I think that's it, right, Jack? I give you a, well, you don't get letter grades on a standardized test, right? Uh, You get a a below basic on that one. (laughs) 